All right. Good evening, everyone. Is this a good volume for you guys? Is that too loud? It feels like it echoes. Is it echoing weird? I don't know why. I don't know that the building's changed that much for the acoustics to change. All right. Welcome. Uh, let me pray for us and we'll get started. Thank you again, Lord, for the time that we can spend together, the time that we can spend opening your word. What a privilege it is for us to read the very word of God. Thank you that you have not hidden yourself from us, but you've revealed yourself to us in your word that we might know you and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I pray that you would give us wisdom and insight into your word that our minds might be illumined by the Holy Spirit as we study and think about your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, welcome. This is the second to last class. Are you excited or sad? Think carefully about your answer. Both. It's very judicious of you, Mike. So, like I mentioned, uh, the last time we were together, uh, we, have, we have now two more class sessions, including tonight, but three more lessons in the book. And so I'm going to perform some pastoral magic and, and do three lessons in two weeks, which given the pattern, you should expect I'm going to do, I'm going to do one lesson in two weeks. That seems to be more of my speed. We'll be here till midnight, yes, no. <laughs> um, so, but uh, for, for today, what I want to do is we're, we're only going to do lesson 10 today. We'll jump into lesson 11. Lesson 12 is mostly review, uh, and so we'll be able to kind of fold that into uh, the lesson from two weeks from now. So we're going to do mostly lesson uh, 10 today. Now, we're going to spend a decent amount of time tonight uh, talking at our tables and doing some exercises, uh, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut short our time to talk about our homework at the beginning. So rather than have you guys talk at your tables about your homework, we're just going to start by just talking as a, as a large group about uh, any observations or questions you might have, the work that we did, uh, and then we're going to move into the lesson uh, for this week just so that you guys have enough time to do all the exercises. I want to really make sure that uh, you have time to do that. Also, it means I have to talk less, which is great for me, uh, and you probably don't mind that either. So, um, the, uh, the big thing that we had you do was do a study of the theme of joy in the book of Philippians. Right, if you're on uh, pages 127, 128, 129 in your workbook, And so I would love to, to hear from you guys kind of what you made of, of that assignment, if you made anything of it, and uh, any, any observations that you can make about, about this theme of joy. How does that help you understand? If you look at the, the, the theme of joy in a whole book of the Bible, um, what does that help you see about, about joy, if anything? 
Yeah, so it's a, it's a recurring theme in the book. It's almost like they picked it on purpose. <laughs> but you're right. I mean, it's, it's a recurring theme in a way that it maybe isn't in other books. Not that it's not present, but it's especially prominent. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, so that's a, that's a good observation. It's, right, our joy is in Christ. And so we have in the book of Philippians uh, quite a bit about suffering about opposition. Um, you know, Philippians is, is different than some of Paul's other books because it's not exactly clear that there's something really terrible going on uh, like there is in like Galatians or 1 Corinthians or some of these other, these other books. But they're certainly, they're facing suffering. Paul's in prison. Uh, Epaphroditus was sick, very sick, almost died. Um, there's some disagreement going on in the church in Philippi. Uh, and so, so there's a bunch of things that are going wrong, uh, and yet joy is, is this prominent theme. Um, what, what does that teach us about joy? Right. And so he's in prison, but he's Yeah. Yeah. Paul's uh, Paul must have been infuriating for his opponents. It's like, okay, Paul, um, we're gonna kill you. Great. To die is gain. Right, fine. We're gonna leave you alive. Great. For me to live is Christ, and I get to share the gospel with people. Well, we're going to keep you in prison. Well, then I'm just going to keep sharing the gospel with the people you bring me. By the way, you can't stop the gospel because some of the brothers have been encouraged by my imprisonment, and so they're preaching the gospel. So more people are preaching the gospel. It must have been infuriating for the people who were imprisoning him. You couldn't beat him. But it's in situations that we probably normally wouldn't think are situations where we would rejoice. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it can be reading reading some of the 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 theme, this idea of the theme of joy uh, in Philippians uh, can, can be frustrating sometimes. It's like, well, you just got to drum it up. Like, I don't care what's going on. You just got to rejoice. Reminding us, well, joy is a, a fruit of the Spirit. It's something that, that God works in us. And yet it is kind of a paradox, isn't it? Because we're commanded to rejoice. Right, and so, yeah, it's something that God works in us. It's a fruit of the Spirit. But it's also something that Paul says, um, here, here's a command for you, rejoice. Which means you have the ability to do it or not do it to some extent. Um, now, when you do it, it's a fruit of the Spirit. Uh, and so, that's, that's challenging. Right? I remember talking with somebody one time, they're like, well, do I really need to rejoice in every circumstance? How is that even possible? Uh, I'm like, well, I don't know if I can exactly explain to you how it's possible, but I can tell you that Paul expected that you were, you were able to do it. And that's if your joy is not based on... See, we're used to reacting and what we would call rejoicing um, when things go well. Paul's assumption is you can rejoice when things go badly, maybe especially when things go badly, um, which gives us you know, a distinction between... Uh, Maybe biblical joy and warm fuzzies. I, I don't know. Yeah, Cheryl and then Brent. Oh, you're just stretching? Okay. Cool, Brent. Yeah. Right, so our, our concept of joy maybe doesn't necessarily match up with what the Bible says that joy is. We don't just walk into church on Sunday morning having gone through something that might be very difficult. Uh, and when somebody says, how are you doing? We're just like, oh, praise the Lord, brother. Everything's wonderful. Right, maybe you do do that. Um, right, but that's not, that's not joy. That's, I don't know, that's a, a mask. Yeah, f- fake, fake. Yeah. Wait, do you really have something now? Okay. Are you you're really not you're not just stretching. Yeah, so, so Paul is able to 
rejoice because there's something deeper than his experience that can't be taken away from him, even by death. Um, and so that, that he's able to rejoice because of the, because of the gospel. Bob, you were going to say something? See, see, rejoices over the, the Philippians and their sincere faith and seeing, seeing them grow. Yeah, absolutely. Any, any observation? Oh, Brent, were you going to say one more thing? You didn't do this? No, no, I mean, what about Okay. Okay. Yeah, all right. Uh, no, yeah, so Brant's question is, the, the words joy and rejoice, is there something different about, about the words? Um, is one more internal, one more external, that kind of thing? So um, I don't know off the top of my head exactly, but my, my guess, and I'm pretty sure this is right, um, is that they're just, so rejoice is a verb, joy is a noun. Joyful is an adjective, so it's. I think they're just different parts of speech. Of this, it's the, basically the same word. So I don't think I would be cautious about trying to read too much into any kind of internal external difference. I think that might be an overreading. Yeah. So no, I wouldn't say that. Um, yeah. Any um, any just kind of comments about having having worked through this idea of looking at a a, a biblical theme. How does that help you? Uh, how does that help you understand the book? How does that help you understand the theme better? Not, I mean, we've been talking about joy, but just kind of in general. How, how do you think this would be helpful as you're studying a book of the Bible? Or would it be helpful? Or was it a complete waste of time? Yeah, Jim. Yeah. Yeah. So studying, so studying a, a, a theme within a particular book, and of course, it's not it's not everything that Paul said about joy. It's not everything that the Bible says about joy, but it's everything that Paul says about joy to the Philippians in this particular instance. But it sets it in a in a particular context. Um, kind of puts it puts flesh on the bones. Helps us to see like this was a, a real situation, and Paul's really saying these things and. And how can we take it away? I mean, it's one thing for us to say, oh, rejoice in suffering. 
um, but for us to say, well, let's talk about what Paul is going through at this point and how he's able to say that. Does that, does that make it more impactful as we, as we read it rather than just saying, oh, just rejoice in suffering like it's a platitude? Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, read. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and so we do. Yeah, we do because we we uh, we always have a tendency to forget, um, and so um, we see the that kind of repetition. When we see repetition, like if you read through Philippians, you're like gosh, he talks about joy a lot. That's probably an indication. Maybe I should maybe I should think about that. Why does he talk about joy? When does he talk about joy? What's the purpose that he talks about it for? Um, if it's if he's repeating it, he must think it's pretty important, right? Yeah, Karen. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so, so when you actually go, and whether you actually wrote all the verses down or, or you just were comparing them, when you actually put them together and you start looking at, at them, it, it gives you a, a fuller picture of what Paul's talking about. It helps you to, uh, you know, when we read uh, through Philippians and we come to a word like joy or rejoice, and we don't spend time thinking about how it's used in the book or how Paul uses it elsewhere, then we uh, have just a very natural tendency to read into it what we think joy means or how we understand it. And uh, so when, when we slow down and force ourselves to say, well, no, what does Paul say about it? And suddenly it will combat the way that we are maybe prone to think about it, which is good because we all, we all come to the Bible with our own set of glasses on based on our experiences, our understanding of different things. And so one of the challenges of good Bible study is learning how to take those glasses off and try to see the text as just for what it is, not for, well, but this, it means this. Well, joy means this, and so that must mean Paul was saying this. Well, but is that what Paul's really saying? Or is that conditioned by the way that our culture or us personally, uh, how we understand joy? Yeah. You, you know, doing this... Um, this exercise, you guys were doing a, a mini study in systematic theology. I mean, this is kind of how systematic theology is done. We take what the Bible teaches about a particular theme or idea, and we say, what, are, what do all the verses about this say? So you're doing a, a, uh, a systematic theology of joy in the book of Philippians. Right, so you're, you're writing a theology of joy, so to speak. I bet you didn't know you were doing that. Congratulations. All right, I want to, uh, I want to move on uh, just so we have enough time for what I'm hoping we're going to get to do tonight. So remember, uh, the last time we were together, we talked specifically about 
uh, literary genres, right? types of literature. Um, we said this was the, the fourth of our three principles for interpretation, literary interpretation. We have to interpret the Bible according to the type of literature that it is. Right? So we read poetry different than we read narrative, different than we read letters, and we all do this naturally. Um, we do this naturally in our everyday lives. We use the example of a newspaper. You read the editorial in the newspaper differently than you read the sports page, differently than you read the weather report and the classifieds and, and so forth. And you know that because you're familiar with these different types of, of literature. Um, and, and so the Bible's no different. We just need to familiarize ourselves with the types of literature uh, that are there. So what we're going to do for the first really kind of the, the bulk of our time tonight, is we're going to run back through those genres. We're going to talk about some, some specific uh, principles for helping us interpret some of those genres, and then we're going to spend a bunch of time looking at different passages from each of these different genres and trying to, to work through um, some, some issues of interpretation. All right, so I'll explain that when we get there. Are you laughing at my slides? So, um, we introduced, I think it was eight or nine genres. Really, only need to talk about eight of them tonight. Uh, we're going to skip apocalyptic literature. I know you guys are really upset about that. Um, I can give you a book to read if you want on that. We're just going to go through and talk about some of these principles for interpreting these different genres for, for narrative. And we may have hit some of this last week, but it's good to reinforce it, particularly because we did such a flyby. Uh, narrative literature, so that's historical narrative, a lot of Old Testament books. Uh, the Gospels would fit into this in, in, uh, in most ways. Um, what's important, uh, one of the important things, and, and, and this is going, some of these principles are going to address uh, pitfalls in interpretation. Um, we, when we don't read the Bible according to the, the, the genre and we kind of read it flatly where everything means the same thing or it means whatever we want it to mean, we end up in some, some kind of weird interpretation. So uh, individual narratives, so if I go into a book like First Kings or or Second Chronicles, or Joshua, or something like this, is narrative literature. Individual narratives find their meaning in relation to the larger context that they're a part of. Um, remember, every narrative is a piece of a story, a larger story, right? And so one of the best-known Old Testament narratives is David and Goliath, right? When we, when we don't read David and Goliath in in uh, terms of the larger picture of what's happening in the book of 1 Samuel, or the larger picture than that of what's happening in the history of Israel in these, this, uh, um, this, this narrative stretch of books from Joshua to Second Chronicles and the history of the kingdom of Israel from the time of the exodus and the conquest until the time of the exile. If we don't read David and Goliath in, in not only in terms of what it's actually saying in the narrative, but also where it fits in the larger picture, we're probably going to end up with uh, uh, an interpretation that may not be what the, the narrative means. 
narratives are not independent units that are strung together at, at random, right? They're part of a larger story. And so it would be, and I, I feel like we know this because we, we know that we read narrative books this way. If you like reading books of fiction or uh, historical narratives or things like that, you, you typically are not just going to open up to the middle of the book and start reading and know what's going on and know why it's important, right? It only makes sense as it fits in a larger part of the story. Uh, and so it's not like, and, and this is, I also use this example, it's not like Aesop's fables where it's just, here's a bunch of different stories that are put together and each one has a moral. Um, that's not the point of historical narrative in the Bible. Uh, and narratives record what happened, right? So this is it's good historical narrative. It's telling you what happened. It's not necessarily telling you what should have happened. It's not necessarily saying what happened was the right thing. It's saying this is actually what happened. Right? So this is another way that it's not like Aesop's fables where it's like, okay, I'm going to tell you a story. Now, the moral of the story is that you should do this and you should not do this. And unfortunately, this is the way that a lot of people read Old Testament narratives, as if they are uh, little pithy stories that have uh, a point at the end that is, um, here are the good guys, here are the bad guys, don't be like the bad guys, be like the good guys. And you wonder why so many people who claim to be Christians are just moralistic and legalistic, because they read the Bible and all they see are do this, don't do this, as if that's the point of the, of the narratives. And they miss, well, how does this fit in the overall picture of the story? How is this pointing to Christ? What is this telling us about God and about his people? So narratives don't always illustrate what we, what we ought to do. They illustrate what, what happened. A good example would be uh, the number of times in the Old Testament where uh, the patriarchs had more than one wife, right? Well, if you notice, God never told them, hey, you should go marry somebody else. Right? So the fact that they had more than one wife is not necessarily something that we ought to look at and say, oh, well, then it's okay. God approves of it. It's like, this is what happened. Also interesting to note that when, uh, when the patriarchs had more than one wife, it usually didn't go well for them. It was usually a bad thing. So it's important for us to realize that not every narrative is giving us a, a moral example to follow. Okay? The other thing is that narratives are selective. They're, they're, they're not exhaustive. They're not telling us everything that happened all the time. They're going to leave us with some question marks and some holes. Um, they are, uh, we've talked about this a couple times now, right? If you go into John 8 and Jesus is drawing in the dirt, right? We don't know why Jesus is drawing in the dirt. Right? So, so John chose not to tell us why. Because we don't need to know why, because it's not that important. Or maybe he didn't know. And, and if, but if it had been important enough for us to know, then the Holy Spirit would have included it in the text. The fact that it's not there means the Holy Spirit did not think we needed to know it. Right? And so we need to always be careful about going beyond what's written. 
say, if the text doesn't say it, well, maybe we can make some inferences, we can, we can make educated guesses, but we don't want to say, well, this must be what it meant and build all this, you know, this deep theology around it because it's not really what the, what the text says. Law. This can be a tough one um, because we relate differently to the Old Testament law than the original audience did because we're not a part of the Old Covenant. Um, and so we, we have to do the work of understanding what the law meant for Israel, but then also think through, well, then what does it mean for us in light of the coming of Christ? in light of Christ who, Paul says, is the fulfillment of the law or the goal of the law. And Paul also says that, that the law was our tutor to lead us to Christ. Now that Christ is here, we no longer need that, that tutor. So we have to interpret it kind of in, in two planes. What did it mean for Israel at the time? And what does that tell us about God and about his holiness and about uh, Israel and their place in the world? But then also, how do we understand it in light of the the coming of Christ. Now, it's important to remember that just because it doesn't maybe apply directly uh, to, to you the same way that it may have applied directly to somebody in ancient Israel, it doesn't mean it's any less God's word or authoritative. The question is that we have to wrestle with as interpreters is how does it relate to us now? And so it's important also for us to remember that the Old Testament law is not binding on Christians the way that it was binding on the people of ancient Israel, except where in the New Testament, uh, it's renewed, right? And so, um, say the, the, the point of the law, Jesus says, uh, ultimately, the, the commandments that really summed everything up were, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That all the commandments ultimately relate to that. Um, but some of the specific commandments were very particular to Israel at the time. I think one of the examples of that, uh, I didn't put it up here, is in Deuteronomy 21. Uh, it says uh, that the Israelites are not to make any uh, tattoo marks on their bodies. Now, there are people who will say, well, that means that Christians ought not make tattoo marks on their bodies. Whether or not you, you do or you don't, I think that's an issue of, of conscience. But what I would say is, if you're going to take what that verse says in Deuteronomy 21 and say, it says it there, therefore we, we can't do it, then you have to go to some of the other things in Deuteronomy 21. Like, you can't breed two types of cattle together. Or you can't sow two types of seed in the same field. Or you can't wear a, a, a piece of clothing that has two types of fabric. Right? This is also this is right in Deuteronomy 21. And so, at the very least, we then need to say, okay, then what's, what's the point? What's the point of those laws for ancient Israel? How does that relate to us? Rather than trying to draw this direct line. That's one of the, the things that can be really challenging about law uh, is because we relate to it differently. Prophecy. Remember, prophecy is, is not only 
foretelling the future, it's also, and, and many times predominantly, addressing the present. Right? It's, the, it's the prophets of Israel calling the people of Israel to repent at that time for their faithlessness to the covenant. Uh, and so, while it does address the future, it doesn't always or only or exclusively address the future. And so, and that's the way we, you know, when we think about prophecy, we're normally thinking, oh, he's telling me something that's going to happen in the future. And that sometimes is the case, but it's not always the case. Um, now, when we look for fulfillment of prophecy, we need to be careful that we allow the Bible to tell us when prophecy is fulfilled rather than the newspaper. If if Scripture doesn't say this is fulfilled in this way, then we need to be very careful about saying this thing that's happening is a fulfillment of prophecy. Is it? Is it not? I don't know. The Bible doesn't say, so we can't speak authoritatively on that. And we talked about last time, prophecy often has this idea of double layering, that there's... um, There could be a fulfillment in the short term, in the immediate context, but also a fulfillment that's that's similar in the long-term context. And so you see this a lot of times in, uh, you'll see in in the prophets, there's there's a a fulfillment of something in the short term that's in that book, and then you'll see it appear again, maybe in the Gospels or in the book of Acts, where the apostles are saying, now, this is fulfilled you say, well, wait a minute, that was already fulfilled back in the book of Joel. Like how, and, and Apostle said, well, yeah, there and here now. Right? And so, now, we can argue about how it is that it's fulfilled that way, but if the apostles or, or other writers of the Bible are saying that it's fulfilled, then it's fulfilled, and it's up to us to try to, to work through how it's fulfilled. Poetry, this one's only got um, one. There's a way more we could say about poetry. Um, but poetry is intentionally symbolic and metaphorical, and, and that doesn't mean that it's not true, right? So sometimes when I say things like metaphor, people are like, well, that means that you don't believe that it's true. You know, I believe that it's true. I believe that it actually is talking about something that's real. But when... Um, when uh, it describes God's uh, nostrils or something like that, I don't think it's actually referring to God's physical nose. I think that's, that's symbolic of something uh, that's true about God, right? Because all of our language about God is completely imperfect, right? We can never express fully and comprehend who God is. So we have to use... Uh, we call the language of analogy to talk about God. And that's what God himself has done. God is talking to us in, the, in language that we can understand, even if we can't fully comprehend who he is. And so when we read poetry, one of the things that can be tempting is to try to read lots of deeper meanings into it because of some of the symbolism and, and things like that or some of the repetition. And uh, we need to be careful about overreading it.
and Proverbs. And Proverbs are also poetry. But they're a special kind of poetry. In your, uh, in your workbook, on page 136, there's some statements about, about Proverbs that I think are really helpful. This first one uh, is the top of the page is from R.C. Sproul, who I'm sure many of you are familiar with R.C. Sproul and his ministry. He just recently went to be with the Lord. He said, a common mistake in biblical interpretation and application is to give a proverbial saying the weight or force of a moral absolute. Proverbs are catchy little couplets designed to express practical truisms. They reflect principles of wisdom for godly living. They do not reflect moral laws that are to be applied absolutely to every conceivable life situation. A good example of this is in Proverbs. There's, a, there's two Proverbs that occur back to back. One says, answer a fool according to his folly. The next one says, don't answer a fool according to his folly. Now, if those were these moral commands that we had to, to follow, I'm saying, well, he just told us to do two different things in back-to-back verses, right? And so, now there's some other things that are going on there, but it's a good example of how we say, okay, these are, these are just practical truisms about the way that godly living works. This next one, uh, it's the next uh, quote down is from uh, Fee and Stewart's How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. Proverbs state a wise way to approach certain selected practical goals, but do so in terms that cannot be treated like a divine warranty of success. The particular blessings, rewards, and opportunities mentioned in Proverbs are likely to follow if one will choose the wise course of action outlined in the poetical figurative language of the book. But each inspired proverb must be balanced with the, with the others and understood in comparison with the rest of Scripture. No proverb is a complete statement of truth. No proverb is so perfectly worded that it can stand up to the unreasonable demand that it apply in every situation at every time. In the Gospels. The Gospels are historical narratives, but they're more than just historical narratives. Right? They're also written with specific theological motivation. So, um, each of the Gospel writers chooses to include or not include certain things. Right? And you see this particularly as you compare the Gospel of John with the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and that they're, they're different. The, the accounts are different. They address different events. And so most of the events in John's Gospel don't occur in the other three Gospels and vice versa. Now, that doesn't mean that one of them got it right and three of them got it wrong or the other way around. It meant that they're, they're looking at Jesus' life from four different perspectives. This quote, this is on page 137 in your book. The Gospels were not written merely to communicate factual information, though they do communicate factual information, 
nor were they composed according to the methods and expectations of modern history writing. The authors were very selective in the material they chose to include and furthermore presented it in a way that reflected their own inspired interpretation and application of the facts. They wrote as both historians and theologians. If you're a historian, you're writing just to say this is what happened. But they're not only historians, they're also theologians because they want you to come away with a certain perspective of what happened. We talked about that last time we were together with really the Gospel of John. John tells us at the end, I could have written a whole lot of other things about what Jesus did. There's a bunch of stuff I didn't write, but I wrote this so that you would believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you will have life in his name. And so he's, he's not hiding his agenda. So there's things he chose not to write. Doesn't mean they didn't happen or that they weren't important. It's just that John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said this is what the people of God need to see. And parables. So we, we talked about this a little bit last time as well. I think I used the parable of the Good Samaritan. Talk about, uh, we, we often will have a, a tendency to overread parables the way that we maybe would with, with narrative as well. They're not intended to be exhaustive allegories, right, where everything represents something else. So the example I gave last time um, is um, Augustine, the famous Christian theologian from the fourth century, uh, had a very creative way of interpreting the, the parable of the Good Samaritan where every, every character and thing in the parable represented something. Right? So the Good Samaritan, well, that was Jesus. And um, the, uh, the Levite that passed by, that was the, that was the law. And um, uh, the, uh, the robbers that beat them up, those were pagans. And uh, the, uh, the innkeeper was the Apostle Paul. And the donkey was prayer. And all, and, oh, it was very creative. And you you can imagine people being like, wow, that's so deep. Well, it's probably not the point, right? And so parables uh, have one kind of main point. Parables are like little hand grenades, right? And so like Jesus gives these people these hand grenades, pulls the pin, and starts telling the story, and then a couple seconds later, it explodes, right? And so for, uh, for the people, uh, the guy, the parable of the Good Samaritan, you know, you think about the context. Right? Guy asks Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus says, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then it says, and uh, the, I think it was one of the lawyers said, seeking to justify himself, said, well, who's my neighbor? It's like, because I want to get off the hook for not having to love the people I don't want to love. And Jesus said, okay, let me tell you a story. So when Jesus says, let me tell you a story, it's usually not going to go well for you. And uh, so he tells the story, and it's like the hero of the story, and this is the big, the big twist. The hero of the story is not the Levite, it's not the priest, it's not anybody that you would have expected him to make the hero of the story as a Jew. It was the Samaritan, the half-breed, the, the guy who follows the wrong religion. He was the hero of the story. You can imagine that blowing up in that, in that Jewish leader's face. 
saying, you want to know what it is to love your neighbor. This means loving your enemy, loving the person you hate. So the point is not necessarily to try to, to squeeze out of the parable every possible connection that you could potentially make in, a, in an allegorical way to say, what is the, what's the force that the parable was intended to have on its original hearers? What's the, what's the twist? What's, the, what's that explosive thing that's going to, uh, to make them think, oh man, I've got to sit back and listen to this. So we should be focusing on asking, what's the point the parable is trying to make, not trying to, to work out all of the details. Now, there are some places where it seems to be that there is more of that, but when that happens, you have Jesus explaining it, right? So the parable of the sower and the, and the soils and the seeds. And, and so he tells the parable, and then the disciples come to him and says, Jesus, tell us what that parable means. And then he says, okay, well, the sower sows the word. And the, the rocky ground, that's these people. And the, uh, and the path, that's this. And, and the birds, that's this. So he explains it to us. But in the absence of that, we should be careful not to just read everything that we possibly can into it. Right? When we have an inspired interpretation of it, we can be confident of it. We want to be careful not to do that when we don't have an inspired interpretation of it. All right, last one. The epistles. These are ones that we tend to be able to, to understand better because we read letters too. Right? We, get, we get emails, and so we kind of understand how letters work, even if they worked maybe a little bit differently in uh, the, the time of the New Testament. But they're easier for us because when they're written to Christians, and so we don't have to do quite as much thinking through exactly it's like, well, I don't have to trace it through the, the Old Testament and how does the law relate to me. It's like these were written to Christians and churches. So uh, the, the applications, the, the commands, the, the doctrinal propositions are things that are much more directly applicable to us. That doesn't make them necessarily easier to understand. You have to kind of unwind them because they're so tightly packed together. But they contain a lot more direct statements of, of truth commands. Uh, but the problem is that, as we talked about probably very early on in our studies, we talked about the background of Philippians, is that um, the epistles or letters are occasional documents. That means they were written for particular occasions. But we don't have the entire correspondence, right? We don't have the, all the other letters going back and forth. We don't necessarily have the record of what was happening at the time. Now, sometimes we have a bit of a window into that through, say, the book of Acts. Or maybe some of the other epistles will, will comment on things that have happened. But we're always trying to piece together kind of the other end of the telephone conversation, right? So when we read an epistle, we're listening to one side of a conversation. And we, we try to do as best we can to try to understand what's going on on the other side of the conversation but we're not always going to be able to do that perfectly. And so as we try to kind of reconstruct what was happening, we can say, well, it seems like this is what was happening. Um, we don't know for sure, but what we know for sure is what Paul is saying. Or something like that. So we should pay attention to places in the text of the letters that we, we get uh, some clues as to what's happening. 
but we should be careful about saying, well, this is exactly what was going on. Right? When you read, uh, there are some commentaries, I swear that pe people are out there just to write commentaries to be creative and come up with something new and exciting. And so they'll say, well, this is really what was going on. It's like, well, that's really creative, but there's really no reason for you to think that. But Oxford gave you a PhD for it, so I guess it must be true. I mean, people will, will write this stuff to make these independent original contributions to the field of theology. And I'm always thinking, if your contribution to the field of theology is original, it's probably not good. Originality is not something that we prize. We, we prize faithfulness to what's been written, but not necessarily originality. So we, wanna, we, we can make educated guesses, but they can only be that, educated guesses. We can't we can't endow our guesses as to what's going on, even if it may help us to, to kind of try to process through what's happening in the letter. We can't, we can't give those educated guesses the same kind of authoritative stand in Scripture. Like, well, this is exactly what was happening. Okay. Before we move on to our exercises, any overall questions on any of that? I know that's, that was a lot. And you're going to see why we talked about that as we do the exercises. Any questions? Okay. Now, on page 138, starting on page 138 in your notebook, uh, under exercise one, debunking misinterpretations of, of genre. And so we've talked about all these different genres now and kind of what they are and some of the things that ought to guide how we interpret them. Uh, and so what we're going to do now is there's, there's eight passages in the next several pages, fairly short passages, and each passage is accompanied by an interpretation. And we put it in, in air quotes, an interpretation and so what, what we're going to do is we're going to go through these passages, and I want you to identify what genre it is, and then read the interpretation and try to think through uh, what, as we, as we think about different principles for interpreting these genres, things that we've just talked about, how we might interact with what this, uh, this interpretation is saying. How might we say that this is, well, this might be a misinterpretation, and this is why based on the kind of literature that it is, right? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do passage one with you, and then we're going to walk through the rest of them uh, in, in stages. So we'll do one, and then we'll stop and talk about it, and then we'll do another one, and we'll stop and talk about it, okay? Let's read the first one. Uh, this is Isaiah 7, verses 10 to 14, and then verse eight, or, uh, chapter 8, verse 3. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz says, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you will weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgins shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Chapter 8, verse 3, And I went to the prophetess, 
That's probably Mrs. Isaiah. And she conceived and bore a son. Now, the interpretation that's proposed here is uh, Christians have been wrong to see this prophecy in verse 7, 14 as referring to Jesus. In the Old Testament context, the sign is given to Ahaz. Moreover, the prophecy is fulfilled in the next chapter. It says, I'll give you a son. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. And then Isaiah says, so I went and my wife got pregnant and bore a child. So what do you think of that? Well, first of all, what, what genre is this? What are, what are we dealing with? It's not narrative. Think, think about what book we're in. This prophecy, particularly because it's talking about a sign being given in the future. Right? So we're looking, we're looking at something in the future. So behold, I'm going to give you a sign. The virgin will conceive. It's prophecy. So what do we think about that interpretation? Yeah, Brent. Yeah, so Brent's saying um, one of the easiest ways for us to say, well, this interpretation saying that Christians are wrong to see this as pointing to Jesus, well, that's, that's wrong, and it's really it's not even that hard because the Gospel of Matthew says that the birth of Jesus was to fulfill this Scripture specifically. It quotes it, right? So we have an inspired account saying... The birth of Jesus fulfills this prophecy, right? So remember, we, we, we let the Bible set the terms for where we see fulfillment of prophecy, right? So the Bible says this is fulfilled. Is there anything else that we might see that would, would lead us to believe? Well, it, okay. Now, the tricky thing about that is that the, the Hebrew word for virgin can also just mean young girl or young maiden. It doesn't necessarily mean virgin the same way that, that we read it. Now, in Greek, there is a different word. And so, and that's the word that's used in the Gospel of Matthew. So. Yeah, but I don't know what the word is. Sorry, I don't have the Septuagint memorized. Sorry. No, yeah, so why do they skip all those verses in chapter 7? Just, just to, they, they were going from the, the, the prophecy itself to showing that in the next chapter there is a fulfillment of it. That there's a child born. And so, yeah. No, it actually gives them a weird name. Um, yeah, Mashashal or Hasbaz. Which if you are expecting, I'm going to put my chips in for that one. Um, yeah, so to say, is there, remember what we talked about with prophecy, right? Is there a near fulfillment and far fulfillment? There's this double layering that there's something that happens in the immediate context, but then also points forward to something greater that's going to happen in the future. Right? 
All right. So I want you guys at your tables to read passage 2, Exodus 20, 8 to 11, then read the interpretation and talk about it and ask uh, if you think that interpretation is accurate or not and, and why. Well, about five-ish minutes. Yeah, I'm giving you five-ish minutes, and then we'll talk about it. All right. Talk about what you guys came up with. So Exodus 20, verses 8 to 11. What kind? What genre is it? It's law, right? This is the ten. This is part of the Ten Commandments, right? Now the interpretation was that um, we basically we shouldn't disregard the Sabbath command. We should observe the Sabbath on Saturday. Uh, we shouldn't be doing any any work on Saturdays, and so. And particularly if we're going to apply it exactly the way that the Jews did, we, can't, we shouldn't be mowing our lawns on Saturdays or things like that. All right? What do you guys think about that? What's that? And stoning people. We should be stoning people who are doing it. So everybody, make sure you stay away from Bob. Yeah, Brett. Okay, so Jesus says in Mark 2 that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now, Jesus isn't saying this doesn't matter, um, but he's also saying the way that the Jews applied it, at least in Jesus' day, was, was wrong, where they were like, well, you can write, this is, I'm serious when they say this, you can, you can write one letter on the Sabbath, but you can't write two, right? You can, you can sew one stitch on the Sabbath, but you can't sew two. You know, you can only travel X number of feet from your house unless you're on a boat. And then it doesn't matter because you're going uh, on the water. And so I'm not making this up. There are some Orthodox Jews who will put a bottle of water under their car so they can drive away from their house on the Sabbath because they're over water. A Sabbath day's journey would be as far as you could walk on the Sabbath, according to the law. That's how, I mean, they would just measure it that way. Well, no, because you can travel further than, than that on any day. So, but they'd say, if I'm going a Sabbath day's journey away, it's like I'm going only as far as I can, I can go, according to the law, on the Sabbath. Yeah, so, so in the law, there'll be, this is how far you can, this is what you can do. So, what, what do we think about, I mean, should we be celebrating, observing Saturday as the Sabbath? Yeah.
Okay. Yeah, so there's a couple times in Acts where uh, Acts and 1 Corinthians uh, where it talks about um, the, the Christians doing things that the Jews would have done on the Sabbath on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, which they'll also call the Lord's Day. Right, so you have the Christians already uh, observing their day of worship on Sunday, not Saturday. Is there anywhere anywhere else you might what they were they were wrong <clears throat> yeah mhm mm mhm mm Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Sherry's saying um, that there, there's, a, there's a, an interpretation that says that for, for the Christian, that Jesus is our Sabbath. He is our Sabbath rest. Jesus is the, the ultimate truth that the Sabbath was always pointing forward to. That we would have this eternal rest in Jesus. And I think that's right. Hmm? And Hebrews 4 would, would, would point to that as well. Right? There remains this Sabbath rest for the people of God. And so it's, it's not about the day. It's about, you know, this, this was designed to point to Jesus in the same way that so much of the rest of the law was, right? The sacrifices and all of these different things were intended to point us to Christ. And when Christ came, then we're not bound by those things anymore. I would also point to, uh, in Romans 14, you have some disagreement uh, between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians in Rome about, or it seems like there's this disagreement uh, about observing certain days, right? And so the, the Jewish Christians seem like what they're saying is, well, we need to worship on, on the Sabbath uh, because that's what we do. We're Jews. We worship on the Sabbath. Now, we're Christians, right? We're Christian Jews, but we're still Jews, so we've got to worship on the Sabbath. And the Gentiles are not used to doing any of that. They're like, every day is the same. It's just, we've never known anything different. And what does Paul say? One person counts one day as greater than another. The other person regards all days as the same. Let every person be convinced in their own mind. Right? So then observance of days then becomes something that's a matter of of indifference. You can do it, you can not do it, but it's not binding. Yeah. Yeah. So there's... Yeah. No... <laughs> I, I, hold on, let me get my answer key. Uh, so, there's wisdom, though, in, um, in resting on the seventh day. Right? There's, uh, God has not made us to work nonstop. 
and never rest. Which might seem odd, living in America, that doesn't tend to be our, uh, our perspective. We tend to think if we're not working, we're being lazy. Right? But God made us to need rest. If you don't think that's true, try working nonstop and never resting. It's not going to go well. And so there's wisdom in, in taking the principle that the Sabbath points us to is that we ultimately, yes, Jesus is our rest, the spiritual rest that we, that we look to, but also physically we, we need rest. Our bodies need rest. Uh, and so there's wisdom in saying, okay, I, I need to take a day off, and that's okay. It teaches us dependence on God, unless you think you're better than God, who set us an example by resting on the seventh. Yeah, Brent. Right, and so, yeah, so, so Jesus helps us understand what the Sabbath is all about. Brett was saying, you know, Jesus said, I'm, uh, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Uh, and, and that Jesus kind of sets the agenda. He says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. You know, up until now, my father has been working, and I'm working. And Jesus heals people on the Sabbath. He does these different things. It's not like he's breaking the law because he's sinless. Pastor Tom works at... Just Pastor Tom works on Sunday? But I don't work on Saturday, so I'm not working on the Sabbath. All right, let's move on. Uh, Just so you see that there's not this one-to-one correspondence between the Old Testament law and its direct application to the life of the Christian. There's, There's application in what does this have to do with Jesus? There's application, what's the, what's the principle that God is communicating here? But not a direct, uh, you, you have to do this uh, the same way that it was done in the Old Testament law. And if you're going to do that, then you might as well just do the whole thing, right? And everything that it says, including not wearing uh, any mixed, uh, mixed fabric clothing. Um, so you'll have to go home and check your tags. Okay. Uh, passage 3, Psalm 44, 18 to 25. Let you take another uh, few minutes and read through that and then uh, look at that interpretation and then we'll talk about it. All right. What do you guys think about Psalm 44. First, what, what genre are we dealing with? Poetry. All right, the Psalms are poetry. They're songs. 
Now, the interpretation is the this person saying is that the psalm is troubling, and it teaches that sometimes God forgets us and even goes to sleep. Um, so what do we think about that? Okay, it's a, it's a poem, it's a lament, that's a specific kind of poem, and so even within the psalms, there are kind of these different subgroups of psalms that have things, so lament is, is lamenting situation, things that are going on, so it's, it's that. Should we think that God forgets us? It's, it's artistic whining. It might be the first time I've heard, heard that for, for lament. That's, um, <clears throat> we'll see if that catches on. It's artistic whining. I'd like to think it's a bit more sanctified than that. Um, What, I mean, as we think about, about poetry and how we read poetry, what, what, uh, what might help us to think through how do, we, how do we interpret this? Okay, it's full of emotion and metaphor, right? So it's definitely artistic. Whether or not whining and lament are the same thing is maybe a bit different. It's full of emotion. What's What's metaphorical? God sleeping? Okay, and we're, we're led as sheep to be slaughtered. Okay, well, we're not actually sheep to be slaughtered, but that's what's going on. But God sleeping? Does God sleep? Well, I, don't, I don't think so. <laughs> he re- yeah, he, Genesis says he, he rests, or at least he rests from his, his labor of creation, but isn't. He doesn't have to go take a nap afterwards. In fact, it's funny, when you, when you go into a, a 1 Kings 18 and you have the prophet Elijah on Mount Carmel and all the prophets of Baal uh, and they're, they're having this, this uh, epic showdown in the octagon and they're, uh, the, the prophets of Baal are trying to call on Baal, Baal, come do, you know, come do this. And then Elijah, you know, this goes on for about three hours about noon, Elijah just starts mocking them. Like, hey, that's a great God you guys have. Where's he at? Is he sleeping? Did he go on a trip? Maybe he's relieving himself. Right? It's almost like the whole point of him saying that is, Yahweh isn't like that. And then, because all he does is say, Lord, and then, boom, you know, fire comes down. So... No, of course, the Lord doesn't sleep. It's a metaphor, um, probably something like, Lord, the way I feel right now, it feels as if you've forgotten me because of what's happening. It feels as if you were asleep. I know you don't, but it feels that way. Now, you also have another psalm, Psalm 121, where it specifically says that he who keeps Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps, right? And so we have to read it against other scriptures, saying, okay, well, yes, of course, we know the Lord doesn't, doesn't sleep. He's expressing his feelings about what he perceives as the Lord's absence. But then you read the rest of the psalm, and he's actually expressing confidence in God. So we've got to be careful when we read 
poetry that we don't overread it and, and develop this theology about, about God. It's like, well, sometimes God goes to sleep because it, it says it here in Psalm 44. We've got to read it in context, got to read it, got to understand that you're reading poetry, so it's a metaphor, it's expressing emotion, it's expressing this person's experience of, of their situation. Any other thoughts on Psalm 44? Yeah, Nate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, so um, thinking through, you, you have passages like this in the Bible, or passages like you brought up Job, where it says, Job, like, curse the day I was born. I wish I'd never been born. Like, well, does that mean it's that's a good thing for us to think too? It's like, well, probably not. So that's maybe a situation where it's it's a lament, but it's also just a record of what was happening, rather than saying, oh, because it says this, then it's okay to to think that or to do that or that's what God wants. Um, now, with with inspiration. Uh, we believe that the, the entire Bible is inspired. It's exactly what God wants it to be. It means that there's, there's no mistakes in it. It doesn't mean that the people in the Bible uh, aren't sinning. And so the fact that the Bible's inspired doesn't mean that there's not records of people sinning and doing things they shouldn't. I mean, we see basically the whole Bible is a, is a book filled with people doing things they ought not do except for one guy, Right? In the Bible, everybody's terrible except Jesus. That's, I mean, that's like the moral of the Bible, right? Right. So if you, if you take it out of context and you only read these couple verses, you say, wow. It must mean this, but if you read the whole psalm and see where the whole thing's going, then, then it puts it in perspective. You, know, you can interpret that. So this is reading in, reading in context. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's similar language there uh, between Psalm 44 and Isaiah 53 talking about, you know, we are as sheep led to the slaughter and he will be led to the slaughter as a, as a sheep. Paul actually uh, quotes this psalm in, in Romans 8, quotes that verse. Um, revealed, for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are led as sheep to the slaughter. Okay, um, we're going to skip passage 4. We're going to go to passage 5. Right, so take a few minutes and look at that, and then we will talk about it.
Okay. Let's talk about what you, uh, what you guys came up with here. We talked about this one a little bit the last time we were together, so I think we've talked through this a little bit already. Um, maybe an easy one first. What's the genre? How did you know? Proverbs. Proverbs 22, 4 to 6. All right, so the interpretation, they said, is, well, according to this passage, if someone isn't rich and honorable, they must not be humble. Furthermore, if parents have a wayward child, it's clearly a sign that the parents failed somehow in their parenting. How do you guys feel about that? <laughs> you, you, you all feel like failures? What do we do with that interpretation? I mean, because this is something that you'll hear. What do we do with it? Yeah. Okay, so, all right, so uh, if, you, uh, if you are humble and fear the Lord, you, you may get riches and honor. It just might not be the riches and honor that you, that you think. It be different than that. That's good. Right, it may not necessarily be long physical life. It could be eternal life. What else? What, what about Proverbs can help us understand what, what this might mean or wh- why we might say, well, I don't know if I agree with that interpretation. How do we, how do we read Proverbs? Practical truisms? Yeah, general statements about godly living. This is the way things are designed to work and ought to happen. But they don't necessarily always happen that way. Right? Hmm? Yeah, you you shouldn't create a, a whole theology around it. Right? So, now, unfortunately, that's what some people will do. So the prosperity gospel would take a verse like verse 4 and say, if you want riches and honor and long life and health and things like that, then all you got to do is just be humble and fear the Lord, and he's going to give it to you. Right? He promises to give it to you. See, it says it right here. And you know what? People eat that up. They eat it up. They eat it up here and especially around the world, right? You go to Africa, and you tell people, if you fear the Lord, he's going to make you rich and honorable, and you're going to live for a long time. People are going to buy that up. That's blasphemous. So we've got to be careful that we don't interpret it the same way and give people these promises. It's like, oh, if you just be humble, then you'll... You know, you'll live forever and um, you'll be rich and, and honorable. Who's the, the, the most humble person who, who ever lived? Not Moses. Moses said he was the most humble person who ever lived. Up until that point he was. 
after Moses? Jesus. So how did that um, riches and honor and life thing work out for the mo- What's that? Yeah, foxes have holes. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So Jesus was a homeless guy who was falsely accused and murdered. Okay, so, yeah, now, yes. So afterwards, God exalted him, and, 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 and absolutely. Um, but we can't be promising people, oh, you're going to live, you're going to live a long, happy life and, and stuff if you just are humble, because right? it may not happen. Yes. But if this is talking about physical life, in our existence right now, no. But some people will interpret it that way. So we got to be careful about the way that we choose to interpret it, because people will interpret it and say, well, this means I am not going to die young if I'm humble. And if somebody dies young, they must not have feared the Lord. Or there must have been something wrong with their faith. Right? Yeah, Cheryl. So I, I think, yeah, so I think, again, we need to be careful about over-interpreting, right? So saying, well, this is, this is a practical truism that it's, it's saying, listen, life's going to go better for you generally if you fear the Lord and you're humble, right? It's not going to end well if you hate the Lord and you're proud. But that doesn't mean that life is going to go the way that you always want it to go. We see that in the lives of, of the saints, right? Well, they're all true. It's not that they're... Well, it's James, which is sometimes it's like the Proverbs of the New Testament. But so, but so, but those are, yeah, um... But those aren't necessarily like that, like what it says in James, uh, everybody must be slow to speak, slow to anger, quick to listen. Those aren't necessarily things that are promising anything. It's saying, hey, listen, this is, this is how you ought to live. Um, you know, and so there are other places in Proverbs that says, get wisdom. Like, listen, don't do this. Uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to end poorly if you do this. Um, the uh, Proverbs 5, where it talks about adultery, it says, hey, listen, if you are listening to the voice of this woman who's seducing you, I'm telling you, you think it's good, but it ends up in hell. Right? Well, that's not one where we're going to say, oh, well, you take it or leave it. It's, you know, that's, it doesn't always end up badly when you commit adultery. No, it does. So, yeah, so, so there are some, some distinctions there. All right, let's... Go to I want to skip I'm going to skip all the way to the end just for the sake of time because there's a couple more things I want to talk about uh, passage 8 Luke 18 2 to 8 we'll take a few minutes and think through that and then we'll we'll talk about it
Okay. Luke 18, 2 to 8. What is the, um, the genre we're dealing with? It's a parable. Yeah. Now, um, it's even easier if you go back in, in Luke 18 and you go to verse 1. It says, now he was telling them a parable. Sometimes it'll do that, and so it makes it super easy for you to figure out whether or not he's, he's doing it. Uh, also, your, the uninspired subheadings of your Bible will often say the parable of the this. That's also probably a pretty good uh, sign. So the interpretation that somebody says is, does Jesus really equate God with the unjust judge in this passage? And is, is prayer really wearing down and bothering God, right? So if we, if we over-interpret the parable, we think that, well, Jesus says that the reason God answers prayer is that even though he's an unjust judge, uh, he just, he gets so worn down and annoyed with us that he's like, oh, gosh, okay, fine, go do it. <laughs> Whatever. What do you think about that? True or false? Yeah, Jim. Yeah, the interpretation is not focusing on the main point of the parable. It's focusing on all these little details and trying to draw. Well, well, the unjust judge—that's this—and the, you know, this is you know one of the one of the questions in the uh, in the interpretation was, well, who's the adversary? You know, who's our adversary? And it's like, so this is you know, who's the church's adversary? It's like, oh, well, it's Satan. So the. She must be talking, you know, the woman is the, is the church and the adversary is Satan. And, God, and it's like, you no, know, you're, missing, you're, you're missing the point. Um, it's interesting, if you go, if, if any of you have your Bible open to Luke 18, read Luke 18, verse 1. Jesus told the disciples a parable so that they should always pray and not give up. Or they, they ought to pray at all times and never lose heart. Right? So Luke tells us the point of the parable up front. So sometimes this will happen. It happens a couple times in, in Luke, where uh, in, uh, actually in Luke 18, uh, right after this parable is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Right? And he tells us up front what the, the point of this parable, it says, he also told this parable, this is verse 9 in Luke 18, to some people who trusted themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. It's like, okay, then that's the point of the parable. Right? And we'll read that sometimes and be like, well, was the, was the Pharisee right about that, you know, he, he's better than other people and he fasted? This? It was like, that's not the point. The point is he thought he was righteous and he looked at other people with, with contempt. So, yeah, Brett. Yeah, and so if you read 
what Jesus says after he kind of tells this parable about the, the, uh, the unjust judge finally wearing down and being like, all right, I don't care about this woman. I don't fear God, but I just want to go to sleep. So, okay, just give her what she wants. And Jesus says, okay, if, if an unjust judge would do that, how much more would God, the just judge, do it? It's very similar to another place in Luke where he's talking about prayer and says, now, now who of you, if your son asked for a fish, would give him a serpent? Right? If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give, give good gifts to those who ask him? It's like, so he's drawing an analogy, but he's not saying, well, God is an unjust judge. He's saying, if the unjust judge would do something that's good, how much more will God, who is a just judge and loves you and is not annoyed with you, give you what you ask if you, you don't give up? All right, so we've got to be careful about overreading and saying, oh, well, he's teaching this. And, um, you know, also they're asking the question, well, are, if, the, if the widow is the elect or the church, then... Are we always poor and destitute? Is the church poor and destitute? What does that mean? It's like, no, you're, you're, reading, too much. you're reading too much into it. That the... D- Yeah, so, so, do, so do the, um, the personalities, the bigger question about how to interpret the Gospels, do the personalities, as far as we know, of the people who wrote the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, affect the way that they present the material? Yeah, I think so. I mean, so with, with Matthew, particularly Matthew's, I mean, Matthew was a... Hmm? Oh, yeah, yeah, so, yeah, Matthew's genealogy... Uh, right, so Matthew's presenting his gospel for the Jews. Right, he's always saying, this is in fulfillment of this and that and this and that. Um, so Luke's a doctor. If you read the beginning of Luke, Luke says, um, I went, basically, I went and I interviewed all these people so I could write this account of what happened. I did my homework, right? It's a very kind of scientific mind. I'm, you're like, you're right. I'm a facts man. I'm going to go and figure out, I'm going to talk to all these people we're going to write this really orderly account of, of what happened. You know, John's got a totally different purpose. So yeah, I, I mean, I think it does affect it. Now, we don't know a ton about all the people. Um, you know, with, with Mark, it seems like Mark was really close with Peter. And so it probably is kind of Peter's account. One of the reasons you know that it's inspired and it's, it's true is because Peter doesn't look particularly great in the Gospel of Mark. Right? If, if I was Peter, I probably would have been dressing myself up a little better. It's like everybody else left Jesus except me. I, I, was, I was good. I was, I was good. But no, it's, I mean. Okay. So, a couple minutes left. 
the very last strategy we have for studying the text is one that you're going to practice uh, in your homework for the next two weeks, um, and that is uh, consulting secondary resources. So our primary resource in Bible study is the Bible. And so the, the kind of the whole point of this course has been trying to equip you to be able to study the Bible on your own without having to rely on other people to tell you what it means, give you the different tools that you can use to study the Bible on your own. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't think about the wisdom that other people have as they've interpreted the Bible. Right? So we, wanna, we don't want to close ourselves off and say, no, it's only me. I, it's me and the Bible, and I'm interpreting it. I'm never going to listen to anything that anybody else says because I could never be wrong because that's not true. Uh, so we, we want to use secondary resources. We want to use commentaries and other things that people have produced as, as helps in our Bible study, but we want to do it at the right stage. We don't want to start by reading a commentary on the text and then doing our own study because then we're, we're bringing what this other person has said and saying, well, well, they said it means this, so it must mean that. Well, it doesn't, just because they have a, a book with their name on the front doesn't mean they know everything. And so, and particularly when you read commentaries and they disagree about different things, you should study the text yourself first, and then you can go and consult these other resources. Or if you come to something where you're like, I have no idea what to do with this. I am stuck. All right, well then go and look at it and it might, might jog your mind and you can kind of work through it. So, but secondary resources are good. Now, they're, they're not all created equal. Um, so there are some that are, that are not good, uh, and there are some that are, that are very good. Uh, that's a quote from John Piper. I'm not going to read it. Basically, um, well, I'll read it because it was convicting to me. We must be aware of the temptation to replace the study of Scripture with the reading of good books about the Scripture. If you want to know if a man has studied well, don't ask him to show, uh, don't ask him to show you his library. Ask him to show you his personal notebooks where he has recorded his own authentic insights into the Word of God. I went home and cried after that. Um, but it would be foolish of us not to benefit from the insights of others. So, Types of secondary resources, types of resources that you can use in your study of the Bible that would be helpful. So you have commentaries, which are uh, somebody studying a text of the Bible and explaining what they take it to mean based on the same process that we're learning here. They're doing their own Bible study, and then they're writing it in a in a commentary. So there's commentaries that are on the whole Bible, like single volume commentaries that will be on the whole Bible. Uh, and then there's also uh, commentaries on individual books of the Bible. Um, now, those commentaries can range from being more easy to read to way more difficult to read. Uh, and they can also vary in their quality, varies in who's writing it. We have lots of people who are not believers that write commentaries on the Bible. Um, so sometimes they have really good insights into it, but I wouldn't usually recommend it because they'll walk away with things like, well, we all know this isn't true, so we're just going to say this about it. So you've got to be careful about that. On this, this sheet that I gave you, this is secondary resources, I gave you list, uh, a list of a lot of different resources that you can you can use, this isn't all the ones that are good, but these are good starting places. 
the whole Bible commentaries, there's a, there's a big thick one, the New Bible Commentary, D.A. Carson edited that one along with some others. Uh, that's a good one. And then there's, uh, for individual books of the Bibles, commentaries are usually written in series. So there's these different series of commentaries, uh, and there are, I put some different levels there. There's kind of a devotional level, which is if you are just reading through a book of the Bible and you want to be reading a, a commentary along with it, just part of your devotion, your quiet time, uh, the Bible Speaks Today or the Christ-Centered Exposition commentaries would be good. If you want to do a study like what we're doing right now, some of those the next level, the NIV application commentary, and those other ones are good. And then the advanced level for you overachievers uh, that are going to get into a lot more complex issues, including things with the original languages. Uh, I wouldn't start there. Um, so, but those are generally speaking really good series of commentaries. Now, within each series, you're going to get some that are better and some that are maybe not as good or you don't agree with. But these are written by people who are evangelicals. They believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. Uh, and so you can generally speaking trust what they, what they have to say. Uh, or at least they're not going to be saying something that's heretical even if you disagree with their interpretation of it. Right? We have Bible dictionaries, which are, just have articles about all sorts of different things, themes, topics, people. They'll uh, oftentimes have uh, articles about individual books of the Bible and background and, and things like that. So that can be, those can be especially helpful when you're doing background research at the beginning about the book. So that's one place where I would say you can use a secondary resource when you're starting to study a book of the Bible. Uh, is It's going to help you understand some of the background. Um, so I've, I've got a couple of those listed uh, under Bible dictionaries. Uh, Bible atlases. Um, a lot of you probably have maps in the back of your Bible that will show you uh, places, things like that. Bible atlases are just longer versions of that, and they'll contain more information, show you uh, maps about where things happen. Those can be especially helpful for narratives. So you're reading, and then he went to here, and then he went to here, and then he went to here, and you're like, that doesn't mean anything to me. Uh, so those can, will help you with, with that. And then introductions to the Old and New Testament. Uh, those are good. Uh, also, as you prepare your, your study, it'll give you background about uh, the individual books in the Old and New Testament. Uh, will help you think through some of those uh, uh, major issues, the, 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 the flow of the book. I mean, again, I would probably try to do your own uh, understanding of the structure of a book first, but then you can go back and see how other people have, have looked at it. Those, those introductions will probably point you in the direction of, of good resources if you want to study more about the book. Uh, so that's a kind of a, an overview of secondary resources. I have uh, I put I put all the uh, the ISBN numbers on here, so you can just go to Amazon and type those in and look them up. Uh, when I post the audio tomorrow on the website, on the website there's going to be links to all of these, so you can just click it. You don't even need to type it in. Um, we have some of this downstairs. We don't have all of it. It's expensive. Uh, and so I want to acquire more of these things so that you can just look at them while, you know, while you're here. The other thing I would point you to is uh, we have a, a library about 15 minutes down the road at Cairn that, that you can go into. You, can, you don't have to be a student to go in and use it. Now, you can't check anything out, but you can go in and they've got commentaries and Bible dictionaries and, and all that stuff. So you can go and and, and use that and look that stuff up uh, if you want. So, and they're gonna, they have more than we will ever have here. Uh, so, 
uh, if you are studying a book of the Bible, that, that would be a place to, to go and spend a little bit of time. Okay? Okay. It's 9.01. Uh, if you have any questions, you can come talk to me, but I want to give you guys uh, the freedom to, to go now. So thanks. See you in two weeks for the very last time. I mean, for this course, but hopefully not for the, like the last time ever. <laughs> <laughs>